You know, there are some very, very basic things that we all learn when we're kids that stick with us the rest of our lives, kind of the building blocks of knowledge. One plus one equals two. You probably don't even remember learning that, but you know it. Uh, our ABCs. Or maybe uh, skills, certain skills we learn as children that stick with us, like tying our shoes or riding a bike. The things that we learn and they become such a part of us that we just take them for granted. You probably don't think about tying your shoes anymore. You just do it. Uh, you don't have to sing the ABC song to yourself to remember that there's a W in there. You just know it's there, right? Well, y'all, today in John chapter 3, if ever there was a scripture, a, a single Bible verse, that we considered essential knowledge, foundational truth, it comes to us right in the middle of John 3. It's verse 16. And it's one of those things that, y'all, John 3, 16, even if you've never consciously, intentionally memorized it, you probably still know it, or you at least know it in broad strokes. It's, it's almost like it comes into us through osmosis. Everybody has a sense of what John 3, 16 says, and it's like it's just, it's just part of who we are, especially if you're a Christian. It's just, it's just fundamental knowledge, and for good reason. It, it ought to be for us something that we know and hold dear. But I want us to see today that John 3.16 is not like our ABCs. It's not like 1 plus 1 equals 2, something that we know and we can recite, but yet we take it for granted. No, this is something that's meant to be for us a constant uh, joy and refreshment, and it ought to really just drop our jaws when we consider what the Scripture is telling us about God and our relationship with Him. And I want us to see also that today, John 3.16, precious as it is, and oftentimes we only talk about it as one single verse, it's really part of a larger context. It's part of a paragraph that gives us, in a sense, the whole story of everything. As precious as verse 16 is, what comes after it, what we'll see today through verse 21, really gives us the big picture of the world and human history. Not just God's heart and God's activity, but also the human heart and how we respond to him. And so I just, I want to read the whole section together. I think it's six verses. It's not very long. Before we dig deeper into the particulars here. This is John 3, beginning in verse 16 through verse 21. And we'll put it on the screen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God." Y'all, what we just read comes on the heels 
of a conversation Jesus had with a man named Nicodemus. And we saw this last week. Jesus, multiple times in that conversation, insists, you must be born again. You must be born from above in order to be saved. And then Jesus tells us how that new birth becomes possible. What God does to make the new birth available to us, we saw it in verses 14 and 15, Jesus says, it will be me, Jesus Christ, I will be lifted up on the cross so that everyone who believes will have eternal life in me. So there's a new birth that has to happen if we're going to be saved, if we're going to be eternally with God in heaven, and that new birth is available to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ who died for us. Now it's interesting, I'll just make a little note here. Most commentators believe there's a break between verses 15 and 16. You may be like me, your Bible may have verses 16 through 21 in red, which represents the words of Jesus. But most scholars actually believe that these are John's words written as explanation or as commentary, and that the conversation with Nicodemus finishes in verse 15. Now, I had, I, I, it kind of blows my mind to think about that. I've always associated what we just read with Jesus, his words. I do want to say this, and, I, and I'm only bringing it up to say this. It doesn't matter. All of God's word is equally and truly and fully inspired. Whether John wrote these words or they came directly from the mouth of Jesus is irrelevant to us. They're no more or less true. It's just interesting. So I thought I'd share that nugget with you, okay? So I, now I do take the approach that these are John's words. Um, and so this paragraph begins, verse 16, with the best possible news there could ever be, right? What God has done based on who God is in his nature. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Y'all, verse 16 begins not with God's activity first, but with his heart. You see that? God so loved the world. And we could, there, we could go on all day long about how God loves the world and what it means to us. Two things that, that come to mind that I want to share with us, two layers when we talk about God's love for the world. First, recognize this. Jesus just got done speaking with a man named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, a teacher of Israel. The Jews had a belief that because they were God's chosen people, God's special called out people, that God loved them, in a sense, he loved them to the exclusion of everybody else. Yes, God created all people, God loves all people in some sense, but he's got a special love for us, and everybody else is just kind of there. That was the dominant belief among the Israelites. And yet here comes the shock, that God's love is not limited to any one people group that God loves the world. God loves both the Jew and the Gentile, the non-Jewish person. And we can celebrate the fact that because God loves the world, you and I get to sit in this room today. We could be off and would be off doing something else, lost and without hope in the world, but because God has loved even us, the outsiders, the non-Israelites. Because God has loved us, we've been brought in. We can be saved. God loves the world. And there's another layer to this that's even more amazing to me. God's love for the world 
is motivated by what? See, we might tend to think that God loves me because of me. That I'm so lovable, God just couldn't keep away from me. (laughs) And y'all, that is not the case. God's love for the world is not based on our loveliness. It's based on his nature and character and heart. And again, that's wonderful news because we'll see it in a moment. Y'all, the world is filled with darkness and evil. That's the judgment. That's the truth. And so if God's love for us was based on our worthiness, we'd all be toast. And think about this. If God's love for you was based day by day on your performance, your ability to measure up and be lovable, you'd never get out of bed in the morning because we know ourselves, we know our own hearts. I know what I am. No, I need a love that's indestructible and divine and perfect because I'm not worthy of what this verse says. God's love does not depend on us. It depends on him. It is a glorious and divine love. And therefore, here's what that kind of love does. God does not look down upon the world and say, let's see who's worthy of me today and I will bless them. No, God loved us so much that he gave his one and only son. He gave him. And y'all, you know, there may be for us times where we're prone to doubt or question the love of God. Circumstances come about and we wonder, does God really love me? And y'all, circumstances are real and sometimes they are outrageously difficult. But when we wonder if God loves us, we can't merely look at what's in front of us. We have to look at the outrageous gift that God elected to give us. The proof of the greatness of God's love is seen in the greatness of his gift. He gave his one and only son, the most precious, the most costly, the most undeserved gift imaginable. We have because God loved us. And y'all, there's a little word in that that scripture that we, we would just very naturally pass by. It's the word gave. Elsewhere in the scripture, we see God sent his son. And of course, that's true also. But when the scripture says God gave his son, that implies that he gave him over, that he delivered him over. Jesus came to die. God didn't just send his son to circle the globe a few times so we could get a glimpse of the divine. He sent him into the darkness and he laid his life down on a cross. He gave himself up. For us, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Isn't that something? (laughs) We see why this verse is so popular, so famous. Back in 2009, some of y'all remember this, Tim Tebow quarterbacked the University of Florida to a football national championship, and on the eye black under his eyes, he had John 316 right there under his eyes. Of course, the cameras showed his face 600,000 times. And so it should be no surprise to us, but we find out after the game that 94 million people Google searched John 3.16 during the course of that football game. 94 million people. That's amazing. That that many people became familiar with, some probably for the first time, became familiar with the best news there ever was through the influence of a man who loved the Lord and wanted his love to be known. But you know, I hope 
that everybody who looked that one verse up chose to keep reading. Because as wonderful as that one verse is, it's not meant to exist on its own and by itself. John certainly would want us to keep reading. And so let's do that. Look at verse 17 with me. As we get a further explanation and a, and a, and a wider view of what's being communicated here. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now that word judge showed up a few times just now. It's really better translated as condemn. If you've got an NIV or an ESV or another translation, perhaps yours gets it a little closer. It's really condemn. It's, it's judgment that is adverse. It's against in this case. And so we see this. God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Y'all, the mission of Jesus is salvation. It's rescue. I try to say this periodically. Jesus didn't come into the world to wag his finger at us and tell us all the things we've done wrong. No, his, his goal, his mission was to save us. Therefore, John says, the person who believes in Jesus is not condemned. But he who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of Jesus. Now, this may be a little confusing. We just read Jesus did not come to judge. He does not judge. He does not condemn. And yet, at the same time, we see people are judged. And yet, this is a critical point of our faith. This is something that I, I hope we'll all nail down today, if we haven't already. Jesus did not come into a world of neutral people. Jesus did not enter into a world of, of folks doing fairly well on our own, minding our own business, we just needed a little push. No, Jesus came into a world full of lost sinners. And so when we read, Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, it helps us to know this. The world was already under condemnation. He didn't need to come and condemn the world. We were already under the righteous judgment of God because we are sinners, and that's what makes the grace of God so amazing. Jesus didn't come to just help us out. He came to save us. You this is the, the Apostle Paul phrases it uh, so well in Romans chapter 5. Look at this from Romans 5. Paul says, For while we were still helpless... At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Think about what, that verse is, what those verses are saying about us, about me. Helpless, ungodly, sinner. Doesn't look great on a resume. But that's my reality apart from the mercy of God. So when John says the person who believes in Jesus is not condemned, y'all, that is a miracle of God's grace. 
That is not something that we could earn or live up to or achieve. We were helpless when Christ died for us. Ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We get the message here. He comes into a world of lostness on a mission to rescue. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we are brought out of death and into life. It's a miracle. And therefore, we never face condemnation again. That's Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Our judgment has been taken away by one who died on a cross for us. And, John says, or but, to those who reject Christ, they are judged already, we see. Next week we'll see it down in verse 36. The wrath of God remains on them. Uh, And y'all, that's what that little word perish means back in verse 16. It's a word we often kind of say quickly or or just kind of gloss over. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. That's not physical death we're talking about. That's spiritual death. That's eternal death. That's the judgment that comes up in this paragraph. And this this is where it gets uncomfortable. It's an uncomfortable truth that I, you know... As a pastor, just honestly, I don't ever relish using the word judgment or talking about judgment. But we have to say definitively that the Bible is not afraid of that word. It comes up often. Jesus talked about it often and without apology. And so when it comes up, we, just, we have to deal with it head on. It's the reality of what God has come to save us out of. And so as we consider the judgment now... I want, us to, I want us to recognize something. And this, this one day we'll spend a whole sermon on this. There is no conflict, there's no contradiction when we talk about God, no contradiction between God's love and his justice or his judgments. Both of those virtues he holds in perfect unity. And so often it's easier or just more preferable for us to think of God as being, yeah, he's like 90% love and 10% justice, right? At least that's what I want him to be when it comes to me. But in reality, he's 100% of all of his virtues and attributes, and he holds them without contradiction. So, it's good news for us to say that God is not unjust when he forgives sinners like me. And God is also not unloving when he judges sinners. And so as we look at the last little part of this paragraph... I hope we get a sense of this and how it pieces together. Look at verse 19. This is the judgment. That the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. This is something that goes back to John's first chapter. So we saw this a couple of weeks ago. The light shines in the darkness, John tells us right up front. And the darkness did not, could not comprehend it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome or overpower the light. But we see here today that the darkness sure does try. That there is a resistance to the light. 
And y'all, it makes sense when we think about it. If, if Jesus Christ enters into the world in all righteousness and purity, he is the Son of God. Jesus didn't just come to tell us what is right. He's the embodiment of all that is right. He's the embodiment of all goodness. He is truly the light of the world. But men, John says, loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. Um, there may be a lot of different reasons why people reject Jesus. But John is saying this is reason number one. This is primary. It's moral. It's not intellectual. That may be part of it, but at its root, it's moral. Y'all, Jesus said this himself in a conversation he had with his own brothers. In John 7, Jesus says, the world hates me. Now, hold on. Everybody likes Jesus, right? Isn't that kind of an interesting thing that everybody generally, everybody likes Jesus? But that's not Jesus' own testimony about himself. Because, of course, it's not good enough to like him anyway. If you really come into contact with Jesus, there's going to be a response, and it's not going to be in the middle somewhere. There's, it's, we're going to fall into an extreme. Jesus said, the world hates me, and then he tells us why. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. The world hates me because I tell the truth about the world that it is an evil place full of people doing evil things. And so the bottom line is if, if a person treasures his or her sin, if a person treasures and holds on to their own way, that person will not treasure the light of Christ because the light opposes darkness. The light pierces to destroy the darkness. And Jesus, in this case, is viewed not as a gift, but a threat. The light has come into the world, but for some people, that light is threatening and is not a gift to them. And y'all, even if you are already a Christian, I want you to know that this threat is ever-present. We're given throughout the scripture commands and warnings about this. I'll give you one from John's own pen in 1 John chapter 2. This is for Christians now. Listen to what he says. 1 John 2, 15. He says, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. Um, the same heart is not meant to love the world and God in the same way. In fact, we can't. It's impossible. I cannot love my sin and love the Lord from the same heart. Jesus says you cannot serve two masters. You will cling to one and you will despise the other. That's the way it always goes. The heart cannot do it. And so for us to recognize, even as Christians, our love for God cannot coexist with a love for our sin. And that's why we see, again in verse 20, everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be 
exposed. Now we get a little bit, we go a layer deeper here into this hatred of the light. A person who is absorbed with sin, in that case, there's no greater threat than exposure. And y'all, this is something we all know to be true. You know it in your own heart, and I know it in mine. The, the greatest fear in our life, perhaps, is the fear that somehow our deepest thoughts might be found out, aired out, put on the screen for others to see. That somehow our hidden sins might be uncovered, and the darkness that we thought no one else knew about comes to light. That strikes fear in the heart of people. And y'all, it's not just because it would be embarrassing, but it's because it would force us then to reckon with who we really are and what we've really done. I'd have to reckon then with my own heart rather than suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. And yet, y'all, I want to show us this. And I know we've taken a dark turn here after John 3.16, but think about this. The most loving thing God could do would be to shine a light in the dark areas of our hearts and expose our sins. To strip us bare so that we might come face to face with what we really are and our deep need for forgiveness. That we might see clearly the bankruptcy of life apart from Christ. What better gift could God give us than to show us what we really are, to expose our sin so that we might come into the light? And see, y'all, I, I want to appeal to us on this point. We said this a moment ago, the world is not a neutral place. And the world is not full of good people and bad people. I know that's how we tend to think about it. That most people are good, some people are bad, and that's how the world kind of operates. We hope that the good will outweigh the bad. But that's not the message of the Scripture. The message of the Scripture is that every single one of us is a sinner in need of God's grace. And so whatever your particular sin issues are, I don't have to know, you know, whether it's gossip or pride, anger, lust, lying, greed, or anything else, whatever it is. I know none of us wants the bright light of God's righteousness to shine upon that sin. That's not what we want. We don't crave that kind of exposure. But y'all, here's my appeal. Recognize that the word light that we keep reading has a capital L. It's not a thing. It's a person. Capital L, light. We're talking about Jesus. The light is Jesus Christ who came into the world not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Y'all, the same light that exposes our sin also forgives our sin and cleanses us from our unrighteousness. The very same light that exposes your sin came to forgive your sin and to bring you into the righteousness of God. And that's how this paragraph ends. Look again at verse 21 with me. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. That, that last sentence, it reads a little strangely, and so I want us to be careful with it. If we read it in a sequential order, we might be prone to think that we do good things, we practice the truth, then we come to Jesus to get saved, 
right? And then we have eternal life. And that would violate what the rest of the scripture tells us, even what we saw just last week, right? It's not that good people are good and therefore they're more, more prone to come into the light. No, remember Jesus says you must be born again by the Holy Spirit. You must be born from above in order to enter the kingdom of God. And so salvation is not something that comes to us as a reward for our goodness. I hope we're really clear on that. Salvation is a miraculous gift. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We are given this gift by faith, not by our own goodness. Your goodness cannot earn it, and your badness cannot keep you from it if you look to Jesus Christ in faith. That's the miracle of salvation. And so this last verse, verse 21, it's better seen not so much as a sequence, but as a description of the new life. That the person who is born again has come into the light and continually comes into the light because the righteousness of God is no longer a threat to us. The righteousness of God is a gift. It's become sweet to us because we've come to know him as his own children, no longer helpless, ungodly sinners, enemies of God apart from Christ, but now the children of God fellow heirs with Christ as his brothers and sisters. And therefore, we've come into the light. We desire to practice the truth. Why would we want to live any other way? Why would we want to nurture and, and, and continue to live in our sin? No, we put on the new self, the scripture says, which has been created in holiness and righteousness of the truth. We delight to obey God's word. Y'all, I, I had a lunch conversation a few weeks ago with a guy who was saved this past October, and he said, it's the funniest thing, I like reading the Bible all of a sudden. I never liked to read anything before, and now I love the Bible. And I said, of course, you're new. What you were before is not what you are anymore. You've come into the light, and you desire to practice the truth. And so, y'all, if you are a new creation in Christ, that light reveals something, not just the sin that shrouds us in darkness no longer. It's the, it's the light that exposes and reveals God's grace, what he's done in making us new. You see that last phrase one more time. We come into the light so that our deeds may be shown to have been wrought in God. Y'all, that means that every single good thing in the Christian life is truly and ultimately a gift, not something we must produce or manipulate, but something that God produces in us. Philippians 2 said, it is God who is at work in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's his delight to produce the newness of life in us and so when we live out the newness of life, every time you obey Jesus, every time you open your Bible, every time you pray, every time you share your faith, every time you give to someone in need, any good thing that we do that pleases God, it shows that it has been wrought in God, meaning God is the one ultimately behind it. Because he is the light who has brought us life. And the light now reveals it. We get to live out and practice the miracle God's produced 
in our hearts. And so, y'all, I, we see in this, in this scripture today, verse 16, but, but also through 21, something I, I hope that we just, it's not like our ABCs. If you can recite it, great. But if you can recite it only, what good does it do? May God put this on our hearts. There is a world, and we're in that world, and we are part of this world, a world full of evil, a world shrouded in darkness, and yet at the same time, a world that is intensely and graciously loved by God. Not because we're lovable, but because he is that good, because he is that rich in love and mercy. And so my heart today, for me, my hope for us, is that we would very simply embrace it. I'm not going to ask you to do anything today. That's really not the point of this scripture. It's not to do anything. But to look to Jesus Christ and to recognize the intensity of his love. Whether we feel it in this moment or not, we may not be able to control. But I pray that as we look at it, as we recognize it, the intensity of God's love is revealed in the greatness of the gift. He's not sentimental toward us. He gave his son. He's loved us that much. And therefore, we have hope that is everlasting. May we welcome the light of Jesus Christ. Listen, that light will expose. Still to this day, I've been a Christian 22 years, the light of Jesus still exposes me, and it's meant to. But by those, because, of those uh, because of the faith that we have in Jesus Christ, we welcome that exposure because we know what it produces. That light is grace. That light is life. That light is the love of God. Come into the world that we might return to the one who created us and love him in light of his great love for us. Let's pray. Um, Father, I recognize, I pray that I recognize in my own heart today that I am um, unworthy of what we just read. I pray for all of us that we would see it very clearly. We're not entitled to what we've just read. What we are entitled to, what we are worthy of, is quite the opposite, Lord, the judgment that our sins have deserved, and yet you have so loved the world, us, that you gave your one and only Son, that whoever in this room, that whoever watching on Facebook right now, believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Father, I pray that the light of Jesus Christ this morning exposes and reveals the most loving thing you can do. Lord, show us what we really are. Not to shame us, not in order to condemn us, but the Son has come into the world to save. And so, Lord, let us see reality 
that the conviction of sin, that the reality of judgment might lead us to the cross where our judgment was taken for us. What a, what a gift. Father, would you make John 3.16 more precious to us today than it's ever been? Show us just how deep it goes. Not something we take for granted. It's not, it's not ABC. Father, it's everything. And I pray, Lord, that it would floor us to consider that you would love us this much. Let us receive that love today in Christ's name. Amen.